Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Imagine Publicity on Air on the Inside Lens Network. And just to put a little plug out there for the Inside Lens Network, um, some of the podcasts that we broadcast are we highlight criminal cases. Some are still open investigations. Um, But I want to let people know that our intent is to allow families to present their information for consideration. Our podcasts and hosts no way represent our guests. We do not claim to solve cases, nor do we wish to jeopardize open investigations. Our uh, guests present their own information, and while we may suggest resources and assistance, we are not liable for their subsequent actions. So that is the the legal beagle out of the way. Um, Inside Lens has been around since before podcasting was cool. And there are an archive of about almost 700 shows. So again, a lot of them are crime related. Um, Back when, when it started, it was author interviews. And so that's what I'm doing here today on Imagine Publicity on Air. And I am thrilled, super thrilled, um, to have my guest on today, Rebecca Morris. She is the New York Times bestselling author, If I Can't Have You, the Susan Powell, her mysterious disappearance, and the murder of her children. She's also the author of A Killing in Amish Country, Ted and Anne, and other books. Her latest book, which is what we're going to highlight today is A Murder in My Hometown, which is published by our good friends at Wild Blue Press. In the the new book, she writes about her investigation into the unsolved murder of a high school classmate in Corvallis, Oregon, 50 years ago, set against the backdrop of 1968, one of the most eventful and dramatic years in America, A Murder in My Hometown is part true crime and part memoir. So it's, as I read this book, Rebecca, I felt this strange bond because it was like you were describing a time that I grew up as well. And so welcome to Imagine Publicity on Air, and uh, I am so happy to have you here today. Well, thank you so much, Delilah. I'm thrilled to be here with you, and I, I do think it's a it's a story that will especially uh, appeal to baby boomers. But I'm hoping for uh, you know that that others too. Uh, it's it's uh, it was a really uh, very interesting project for me because it was quite different from anything I've I've actually done. Was it you know was it. In what way was it different as far as this was someone you know? I mean, you've written true crime books before. You've written about the Susan Powell case, which was one that just was, yeah. I think it devastated America. And I might say her remains have not been found yet. Um, but in in researching a case like that and then researching um, the murder of your classmate in your hometown. Was there a difference in the way that you went into the project? Well, it was uh, it was a challenge to be objective, but I knew that early on that um, that I was also going to be writing about you know about my hometown, and I I suspected that I had kind of an idyllic view of it that. That wasn't everybody's idea, but uh, more than three years ago now, I put something on my high school class Facebook page, saying, you know, I'd I'd always thought about Dick Kitchell, and our classmate who was murdered when the beginning of our senior year, and I heard from dozens and dozens of people, Delilah, who said they had never forgotten because it had never really been solved. There had been, you know, no arrest or conviction, and. For, for 49 years, we'd assumed that his father had killed him and they'd never brought a case against him. But uh, so I went to, you know, I've been back and forth my whole life, even though I've lived away as an adult for, for 40 years. But I went back a special uh, session to sit down with some of those classmates three years ago. And 
just to talk about our memories of Dick in the town. This is before I really started the book. And what I heard from from the first moment was that and learned that my my hometown wasn't necessarily their t- their town that mm-hmm. there had been you know classmates of mine who'd been desperately unhappy and ready to get out of town and that included Dick and uh so I knew f- from right then that that uh, you know and they felt that his case was unsolved because his father had not been prominent in the town and so I had to look at you know was that a factor that this was a this is a college town a university town that was about population was about 30,000 when we were growing up and now it'd be closer to 50,000 but the the college is the town and either your parents you know were involved with the university as my dad was or they were not but my family my parents had you know a wide spectrum of friends friends who were farmers friends who were the florist in town um you know, uh, friends who were at the university, but their closest friends were people in our church and not necessarily university people. So I, I learned a lot. I learned a lot, including about the, the the racist background of small towns in Oregon that were settled. You know, those pioneers coming west on the wagon trains were really leaving the south and bringing some slaves with them and bringing their their southern baggage they wanted to create and their early laws were about you know creating a south in the west i didn't know that i, I no didn't idea. know that either that's that's quite interesting that yeah, really so is that the well, kkk i'm sorry the yeah. kkk flourished in in oregon in the 1920s and 30s and uh so um you know, I, I and the other part of that was so different for me to write about is I've I've written about myself a little bit in in uh, newspaper features like when my brother and I were taking care of our mother, you know, when she was 97 years old and some some first person kinds of accounts, but I never really revealed myself in the same way, and I felt I had to in this book because I've, if I'm asking my classmates to tell me to be candid with me than I felt I needed to to talk about my own experience growing up there. Right. Well, let's talk about Dick Kitchell. Um, mm-hmm. Apparently, he he was a, a guy from the wrong side of the tracks, as, as little towns back then yeah. always had the, those places. I remember I grew up also in a small little town, and I mean, you knew where those kids lived, whether they, you know, had parents that were welfare mothers or whatever the case might be. We didn't look at it as so much, at least in my situation, I didn't look at it so much as realizing how lucky I was. And mm-hmm. so tell us about Dick Ketchell. Well, Dick was, um, you know, as I as I speak to his closest, you know, boyhood friends these last few years, you know, he was a really uh, sweet kid, you know, a, a Cub Scout, and he liked to he played baseball in the summers, and but there was, um, you know, I I think the reason he became what we used to call a JD, a juvenile delinquent, is that his his family was, you know, a mess. His um, his mother had been pregnant when when she married his father, and they were together just a few years. And then there was a series of stepmothers, you know, in and out every few years. He he usually lived with his father in Corvallis. You know, sometimes he'd go to Olympia, Washington, where his mother was. But um, a series of rental houses, a series of stepmothers, and um, his father owned a shoe repair shop in uh, Corvallis. So, you know, very legitimate little business. But um, Dick was his only uh, only child. And so there was also a series of, you know, step-siblings, usually step-brothers kind of in and out. And so Dick's life was really um, unsettled. Yeah, I think he never quite knew where home was. Uh, I think home was his 
wherever his bedroom was at the time because his friends say that he kept it you know he kept it very neat it was very special to him it was the one place you know where where he he could be himself and he'd had a lot of friends as a as a high school student he began to get into some trouble just a couple of weeks before he was murdered he'd been you know drinking and driving and there was a girl in the car with him and they uh the police began to chase them, and he drove off the road. And they weren't injured, but it was a pretty spectacular accident in the middle of town. And so his very first mention in the town newspaper, in the Corvallis Gazette Times, was that this you know unnamed minor was uh, had been arrested for uh, drinking and driving. So he lost you know he had two two or three main important possessions to him. There was his room wherever they were living, but there was also this blue fort of his that that so that was smashed up. So leading up to his murder, he didn't have his car, and that will turn out to be an important factor in in his murder. And the other thing is that he had this sheep, you know, sheer line jacket, suede jacket that that he just wore all the time that was important to him and that also figures in his murder but he'd been you know he'd become kind of he he was drinking he was getting into trouble um his friends saw him you know change over the years but he still had you know a pretty wide social group he knew everybody in all all the different you know social strata that we fell into he was dating a, a cheerleader she wasn't the one that was in his car during the accident but but uh, she, the the girl he was dating, the cheerleader, wasn't allowed to go out with him, but he could go over to her house, and they would just sit and talk. And uh, I think he was, you know, pretty proud that he was, you know, dating a cheerleader. And and lots of people considered him a friend. I knew him a little bit. We went to junior high school together. Those were the days of before middle school, but we went junior high together. And then I don't think I had classes with him in high school because, you know, he was taking more of the basics and uh, auto repair classes and shop classes and and things like that and uh but I know he signed you know some of my yearbooks and so that's um that's more than I knew going into this I just thought I would take a look to see what what actually had happened and why nobody was ever arrested so he wasn't he wasn't really shunned or bullied or anything like that. Um, no, what? No, and he had a lot he, of friends. He was sometimes a big circle. Yeah, he was sometimes the bullier. I mean, he had a a stepbrother living with them that that year that he was murdered. That uh, was a couple of years older, but you know, and Dick was a small kid. Uh, he'd been small as a child. He was small as a teenager. He was just. Five foot two and 125 pounds, according to the autopsy, and he. But he wasn't bullied himself. He he was uh, picking fights that year, and he he'd pick a fight when he was drinking and be belligerent. But um, but people didn't really pick fights with him. Kind of yeah, I I I rem- you really took me back when I read this book. Really, it brought back a lot of memories because I'm I graduated in the same almost the same year year after oh my. in 1969. Uh-huh. So it was it was definitely brought back a lot of memories, and I was you know trying to place in my mind who in our school or who in our group of friends would have been the Dick Kitchell. And I I remember, yeah. Oh yeah. There, there were several Dick Kitchells in our class. And there there were several. And uh, unfortunately events transpired that, um, you know, that he lost his life our, our senior year. And but I really I did enjoy besides learning more about Corvallis, but revisiting, you know, as an author. Well, um, and this may resonate with you too, Delilah. But the the hamburger hangouts where people, oh, you know, yes. cruising, cruising the town, and where you went in your car, which was so very important to be seen and to see people, you know, in your car, 
and that's where a lot of the socialization uh, happened. Oh, yes, it did. Was, and was and for $2, two dollars worth of gas, you could ride all night. <laughs> yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> and, well, how... and afford a 19-cent hamburger. Exactly, exactly. So in 1968, how old was Dick? And then go into maybe some of the circumstances of his murder. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, he was 17. I was 17 in the fall in the fall of 67. So it's the 1967-68 school year. And um, so he was 17, and um, the circumstances were that um, he didn't have his car since he'd smashed it up, but he got a ride from a another boy who uh, who was a neighbor. He got a ride to a party, and he often went to the house of this couple that were a little older. They were in their early 20s. They had a two-year-old child. Um, I To this day, I think it's curious that, that they would be the site of a lot of teenage parties. I have a feeling, well, I know, because I was told, you know, the teenagers would give them money so that these this couple in their 20s could buy, you know, could buy the beer and uh, et cetera for, for kids who came there. And so it was a gathering place for mostly high school students who drift in and out on uh, different evenings of the week. And then there was one person who was a little bit older who was 23 years old, and uh, Doug Hamblin, who, you know, all these people were, CHS Corvallis High School people too and graduated or didn't graduate but we're talking about all local kids and this older group uh, Doug Hamblin was 23 by 23 he'd been married and divorced and had a child and was you know trying to pay child support and he also had been you know in and out of some trouble and on the night of October 11th uh, 1967, Dick got a ride to the party, and um, various people came and went. At some point during the evening, there was a scuffle and an argument, and uh, kids who were at the party told the police that Dick had insulted the the wife of the, you know, at the house of, of her name was Judy Everett's, that he'd insulted her, and that her husband, Paul, had pulled him out on the porch and put Dick up against a pillar and, and uh, you know, argued with him. And then accounts differ. You know, Dick either went back inside the house and apologized and left soon thereafter, or he did not. It, it just wasn't clear uh, what exactly happened. So um, then... Um, the uh, They were approaching midnight. A couple of boys, besides Dick, needed needed rides home because they didn't have cars. And this 23-year-old, Doug Hamblin, offered to give the three a ride. So three three students, uh, Dick's age, got in the car. And first of all, Doug Hamblin took a boy home who had a midnight curfew, took him home first, and then drove north to take home a second one. At some point, Dick, who'd been in the back seat of the car, moved to the front seat. And um, uh, one of those three is uh, deceased, and the other one I couldn't reach. So I don't know why, what was going on in the car or um, why Dick moved to the front seat. But um, the, passenger saw, the passenger door in the front on the front of the car was broken. So anybody who got into the front seat had to slide across, you know, the bench seat. You remember bench seats in cars. So that placed Dick then in the in the passenger seat of the front seat. And um, Doug Hamblin said that Dick wouldn't tell him, you know, and we know Dick was, was drunk and argumentative. Dick wouldn't tell him where he lived. So he says he let Dick out on a downtown Corvallis street, and that was that. Um I, I think the saddest thing I learned in this story, is, Delilah, is that, well, his parents didn't notify the police that he was missing for five or six days. You know, they just didn't. They just didn't notify anybody that he was missing, you and know, they I, finally did. 
I find that sad as well, and it's and unfortunately, yeah. it's not that uncommon. I work with a um, a missing persons organization as a volunteer, and it's it's very surprising to me how many, whether it be parents or a loved one or a sibling, yeah. will wait. And I think it's not so much in in most cases a matter that they don't care. I don't think they know what to do. They just don't know, I, and yeah. especially and Dick fringe. Run away, yeah. Dick did right. have a history of running away, but he did leave town for a couple of days at a time. You know, they'd go to the Oregon coast. It's what we call the beach in Oregon, the Oregon coast with friends, and and so you're right. They his parents may not just have known kind of what to do, or they they thought they'd show up, um, and then um, so they. You know, there was a little mention in the in the newspaper that if somebody knew about him, they should contact his parents, not not necessarily the police, but his parents. And anyway, ten days after that party, uh, there was a boy standing on a dock on the Willamette River, which you know runs the whole length of of Oregon. And um, in 1967 was you know the most polluted river in North America. It's also one of two rivers that runs uphill, uh, south to north. It's just a, it was just a curiosity, uh, but extremely polluted river. And this boy is fishing, and a body comes floating by, and that that was Dick. And so, you know, they retrieved him out of the water. And um, so he'd been ten days in, you know, one of the most polluted rivers in America. And but they were able to tell that he'd been pretty well beaten, you know, beyond whatever happened on the porch at the house during the party. Uh, He'd been beaten and he'd been strangled, not necessarily with fingers, but perhaps by an arm or with a piece of cloth. But, um, but, you know, 10 days in a river is a lot different than, than having been outside or buried. So uh, they were not able to do blood samples. And of course, forensics in 1967 was, you know, was not anywhere where it is now. They um, they went back, even the night they found the body, they went to the party house, and there were the same, there were the same people there drinking. And, you know, our, our high school kids and, you know, the renters of the house and 23-year-old Doug Hamblin. And because uh, they police had found out that that was who was in attendance at the party that night. The police, you know, told them they'd found Dick and he was dead and nobody, it didn't seem to register with them. All They might have already known it because word of mouth travels pretty fast in a small town. Um, and he'd been found uh, around noon that day. Um, so they, um, you know, they looked at Doug Hamblin's car, but 10 days had passed. They did not seize the car. They didn't see anything of interest in the car. They looked at his hands and his face, but he worked in, uh, you know, some kind of metal shop and had dirty, gritty hands. There was nothing they could tell. Um, the Dick's coat was not with him in the river. And so, and they didn't know where the crime scene was. There didn't seem to be a crime scene. So that was where they they started from then and they uh they did polygraphs you know very early on and then a series of polygraphs helped point them towards their their best suspect well what was your opinion of the initial investigation i mean yes they obviously did not have the tools forensically that we have now but i mean do you feel like they did a thorough investigation did they uncover everything that they could at that particular time well i uh there probably wouldn't have been a book if the two original detectives and the da uh, weren't still living but they are and they're in their 80s and i met with them a lot and um they thought the police report was lost but we found it and they i told them you know um that for 50 years uh dick's classmates uh, felt and friends felt that you know this had never been really, it, it wasn't investigated because Dick's father wasn't prominent. 
And uh, they, especially the two detectives, they just said that was not a consideration at all. But, you know, they they spent a lot of sleepless nights wondering how they could how they could bring a case, and they begged the DA, you know, for months to just go ahead and charge uh, Doug Hamblin because he was their best suspect. And so the the detectives themselves, you know, I just felt. I was pretty convinced that they did everything they could. The case was looked at again as a cold case in 2008 and 2011 by, you know, a, a young detective on the force. And he's been very candid with me. He's now on a different police force in Oregon. But he felt that they hadn't done enough. And he felt they could have charged um, Doug Hamblin. And he's told, you know, he's shared with me specific why. Why and he's he's been critical of that that early investigation and yet you know I I looked at it all and I don't know what else they could have done except because if they'd taken to the grand jury and not brought charges um, I don't know if they could have ever tried again but there really was nothing conclusive except that. Um, by Doug Hamblin's, by the time he had his third polygraph, uh, the first two were, were you know, ranked inconclusive. The third one, the state police examiner said, you know, this, this fellow did it. But, you know, that's, that's not evidence. Right, uh, you can't so take I, it to court, I, yeah. I think they did everything they could. I don't know what else they could have done. They uh, tried to put pressure on Doug Hamblin, and uh, finally, of course, he hired a lawyer who said, after the third polygraph, said, you know, you charge him or you leave him alone. Um, it's really interesting the sort of things that, that came up. Uh, Doug Hamblin um, suddenly, uh, you know, he'd disappear for a little while, but then he'd be back in town, and at one point he was attending a church, and the, the minister of the church actually told the police if you're looking in his direction, you know, you're, you're on the right track. So that would imply that, um, that perhaps Doug Hamblin, you know, maybe didn't make a formal confession to, to the minister, but had the minister had his, his doubts about uh, his you know, innocence. In right. Well, why, do, why th- do you think the investigation went cold and, and was kind of just forgotten up until 2008 um, was it because they just there were no more leads to follow or or other pressing things came about well you know people things do come about and and detectives are pulled off onto other cases which was what happened early you know in 1968 not too many months after the murder you know they were on to other things and um, the case wasn't closed um, you know every once in a while you know I could see by looking at the at the, the police report that you know a, a call would come in from you know somebody over the years and usually I mean you can kind of tell by reading these things that there were you know just little fishy kinds of rumors and I'm sure that they that they were looked at, although although the police report doesn't really say that. But you know, there's a lot of um, odd reports that come in, and and I'm sure you know that that you know even even right after this murder, I mean there were you know there were rumors that uh, kids from another town, you know, had been driving around and killed Dick or the mob was involved or well you know there wasn't a mob in in Oregon at the time and uh you know they they'd look at these they they looked at everything you know he was he was uh, said to be seen hitchhiking they looked at that they couldn't you know their basic question was they had to figure out had dick ever gotten home did he ever get home and had you know one last fight with his father because the police had been to his home before to break up fights between he and his dad, but 
as this one cop told me, in those days, you know, there was no foster care. There was nowhere to take a child if you took him out of the home for his protection. So you tried to intervene, and then you left them there. So Dick and his father had a history of, of some, some fist fights. So the police were trying to figure out, did, did he get home or not? And they couldn't prove that he ever got home. And then that left him, well, what about this, you know, being out let down, uh, downtown? But realized they had, you know, they had no, of course, DNA. They had, they had no evidence. There was uh, no blood in the car. There was no crime scene. There were no witnesses. They know that, you know, often, I mean, the last person to see him was this Doug Hamblin. And... Um, uh, there were a couple things along the way that that uh, you know contributed to their suspicions about Doug Hamblin. Uh, everybody wanted to know where Dick's coat was because he never took it. You know, he just never took it off. And but he'd taken it off. And whether for that last fight he had uh, down by the river or on the street corner, but he'd taken off the coat. And Doug Hamblin admitted he he found this coat he thought it was a child's coat you know he he lied about the coat but he told the police he'd given it away to a child in the neighborhood so they got the coat and um so that answered that question but why dick had taken it off you know maybe because he'd been pulled out of the car by doug hamblin but at some point you know whether they were ever at the the corner of 4th and B Street, as Doug Hamblin said, or a block and a half east, which was where two rivers converged. You know, I, I don't think we'll ever know exactly where Dick got into that last fight. Well, I think this is the, um, you know, the sad part about cases like this that are so old, number one. And, of yeah. course, records weren't kept as, as we do today. There wasn't the tools to investigate. And so, you know, it will probably never really be a solved case. Um, and that's that's kind of sad because, obviously, I think most of the players – within that case the suspects anyway are no longer with us so there's really no justice for this young man so you know i really at least i i, I mean i commend you for writing this story and well, and not you know, forgetting Delilah, about him uh, i know it's it's not it's not the most sensational crime you know in the country it wasn't really anything special was it except to people in Corvallis? But I think that's what attracted me to it is that it's still, I believe it's one of only two unsolved murders in Corvallis, Oregon. And these detectives, um, who I think were were pretty good, had never had an unsolved case. Um, and in case I forget to say it later, when the cold case detective in 2011 was looking at the case again and and interviewing people, and he thought he could take it to the grand jury, you know, all those years later, and then he found out that Doug Hamblin had just died. So what, we'll, never yeah. know. we'll never exactly. know if that would have, um, um, you know, uh, somehow resulted in a, a conviction. It is considered... Um, Conditionally closed, which means because of the death of the best suspect, they've conditionally closed it. Right. And um, so, you know, they're not, when you talk about, people ask me, well, what about justice for his family? Well, you know, his his parents are dead. Um, his birth mother in, you know, from, in Washington State didn't play much of a part in this. The police only talked to her on the phone, which I thought was really kind of curious. They visited all the other, you know, all the stepmothers who had been in his life, and they did talk to his his father repeatedly. You know, that's uh, another thing that's so sad about this. His, his dad, who owned the shoe repair store, was, he was an angry man to begin with, and he was angry, he seemed to be angry at the police about this. And he and his wife, they 
they refused for months to give a, a, a polygraph exam, which was, you know, you had to wonder what, why that was. They finally agreed, but, um, you know, I think the, the saddest thing of all is that the detectives say never once that month, that, that week, that day, that month, that year, the decades to follow, never once did his father ever call the police and say, well, you know, what's going on? with the case of my, my murdered son. Can you imagine never to call, never I to can't. name the police, never well, to did show he have, Do you know whether or not he had some fear of being involved with police on any level? Did he have a, a well, criminal record of his own or run-ins with the police? Yeah. We never tracked that down, but they, they speculated that, um, you know, when I interviewed them a couple of years ago, that uh, maybe he'd learned shoe repair business, you know, in prison somewhere. That that's that's mm. one of the places that trade used to be learned. And um, but they they had never really traced that. And uh, frankly, I didn't I didn't really have the time to to figure that out either. Um, and then and then the the end of the dad story is that when he. Uh, died, you know, in California several years later. Uh, I mean, just just a, just uh, maybe ten years ago, his obituary didn't mention his only son. You know, his predeceasing uh-huh. him. It mentioned stepsons. Oh, that's sad. So, you know, I'm really this is, falls into what we were kind of talking about. How do people cope or not cope with? with a violent crime. And, you know, his father seemed to have coped by, you know, being angry at the police. And the, ste- and the ste- stepmother at the time was, too. You know, uh, they just, you know, seemed very angry. And maybe that was the anger, you know, turned outward that rather than inward. Um, True. There may have been a lot of other factors, a lot of things going on in their lives that they didn't know how yeah. to cope with, and this just kind of went right on yeah. over the edge. But I, I have to had, agree with you. They stayed married for a few more years, but, you know, there were lots of marriages, you know, between uh, those people. So she, she, this stepmother wasn't the last one? No, no. I see. No. But I think, you know, and 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 what we've talked about and in, in, in reading the book, I, I have to agree. I think that the detectives did the best job that they could possibly do at that yeah. time. And, you know, we're talking about 1967, 68, you know, the summer of love. And yeah. tell us a little bit about what else was going on in the area. I think, you know, I think we all most true crime um, readers and fans, you know, kind of see a, something happens in the Pacific Northwest seems to be the home of the serial killers and, and well, crazy yeah. criminals. <laughs> yes. I mean, this would have been, this is, uh, uh, you know, we do have a lot of serial killers in the Pacific Northwest and people, uh, people blame the rain for any weather. But I think it's, the, you know, the West is still, there's still a lot of land out here. There's a lot of places to hide. And, you know, there are all kinds of, you know, kooky crimes. Or I I covered the Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh when he and his, you know, cults were taking over the oh, small yes. town in western Oregon in the early 1980s and tried to, tried to poison the state uh, attorney general. General and and the town of the Dalles and you know I, I mean it's just all kinds of things and I've written about Ted Bundy extensively and my first book Ted Nan is about a an eight year old girl who's been missing from Tacoma Washington since 1961 and there was always this you know myth that maybe she was Ted's first victim because they lived in the same neighborhood and so um, and she's never been found but I think I think the best true crime books are also about, uh, you know, a time and a place. And that, you know, the crime doesn't happen in a vacuum. In this case, it happened, you know, in a small college 
town, and uh, and you know a lot is happens to be it's being written about 1968 right now because it's it's 50 years, and you know that was the year. I mean, um, you know, um, uh, Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated, and it very much affected you know my schoolmates and and the college in town and there were marches and and i as you know delilah because you've looked at the book i follow six or eight students through our senior year that that kind of became examples for me of you know they 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 had this year of their life that that dick didn't have and um and they one of them was the editor of the high school paper who I, you know, worked for, and another was the homecoming queen, and uh, another was a boy who was, you know, hiding that he was gay, actually enlisted and went to Vietnam because he thought it would make him straight. Um, and uh, then, um, you know, the presidential primaries used to be more important and especially in the West, you know, before New Hampshire and Vermont and Iowa sort of jumped on the, the bandwagon. So primaries in as late as May were, were really important. And that year, of course, uh, was when, when Lyndon Johnson had decided not to run for re-election. So everybody was, was jumping in. So Richard Nixon came to Corvallis in May, just before we graduated, May of 68, to campaign in Old Oregon State, and then Robert Kennedy came and spent two or three days in Oregon and came to Corvallis, and so some of the students I write about, you know, went to see him, and um, literally the night of our graduation, uh, the next night, I mean, sorry, the next week, uh, things just sort of came to a halt, and it was announced that, that Kennedy had been shot, and in California after just winning the California primary and uh, and then died the next day. So our year is sort of, you know, back-ended by what was going on in America with the, you know, there were there were uh, ri- racial riots and, of course, the Democratic Convention in Chicago in the summer of 68, and there were a lot of Vietnam, you know, anti-Vietnam demonstrations. Um, one of the, the boys I follow in the book his father was sort of the conscience of Corvallis, and um, they were just the fourth Jewish family to move into town. And, and my classmate, Mark Goheen, remembers, you know, school teachers, you know, telling, taught, deciding it was up to them to tell him how the, the Jews had called, killed Jesus. And, you know, there's a lot of anti-Semitism in Corvallis, too. And, but his father was kind of the lone demonstrator at the Oregon State University campus. In the rain, he'd pulled a, a sign, you know, demonstrating against Vietnam, sort of standing out there by, all by himself. Well, those events around the country brought brought the world to Corvallis in a way that nothing ever had before. So that that pretty much burst the bubble of of this, you know, charmed life that a lot of us had led. Well, and I think it did for the whole country. 68 was just a year of turmoil and, and like you say, the assassinations and um, and the Vietnam yeah. War protests and the, and the Chicago uh, Convention. Yeah. And it was, I mean, I yeah, I remember it very, very well. It, it's, yeah. and, and again, the after... They called Vietnam, yeah, the television war, because we could see it yes. happening on our in our living rooms, the living room war. Uh, yes, and and it and was horrifying. It was, you know, it's it was horrifying in a in a sense, and I think it really it really validated how we felt about the war. At least in in my circle of the anti-war people, um, mm-hmm. it really validated the horrors of war. We really had never ever seen the horrors of war like we did in the Vietnam War, and we haven't seen it since. Because of the Vietnam War, I believe. Um, so yeah, '68 was was such a, a traumatic year for the whole country, and it did. You know, after after the summer of love in '67, when everything was peace and love, yeah. to go into '68 and have all of that turned around. I mean, we just all did a 
a big flip. And this was when Charles Manson was, you know, uh, yes. l- luring young women to his his ranch in California, and and um, th- there was just a, an awful lot happening, and and uh, a lot of us in Corvallis were, you know, interested, and it it was outside of town, but of course it was going to it was going to affect us, and um, we had two. Two classmates who were killed in Vietnam. Not not the boy that that I write about, but but he was, um, you know, he was a helicopter pilot. And a few years after he came back from Vietnam, uh, he crashed a helicopter in Alaska and was the only one to walk away. And then it, and then a, I think it was hours later he had a stroke, and he's been mostly disabled ever ever since then. Oh. And, uh, and it did not, you know, serving in Vietnam did make not make him straight. But I, I, I really uh, admire his story because he's married to a Vietnamese refugee, a man, and they're, uh, you know, leaders in Portland, Oregon, and volunteer every year at a at an orphanage in Vietnam, and and you know, have really done important things with their lives. Well, that's good to hear. You know, it's it's like so much tragedy happens surrounding a case like this, and to yeah. to know that there are some rays of sunshine that actually came out of that era and and out of out of your little town and all of the yeah. trauma that it experienced. Well, I really enjoyed. You know, the very back of the book is kind of a "Where are they now?" and supplemented by our high school senior portraits and um so he's one of them where are they now and the other is the homecoming queen who um you know uh put her husband through medical school and they he's a physician in Corvallis and they uh for they they co-founded a uh, a school in the Ukraine um that they and others you know fund every year and that her husband uh, once a year goes to uh, Haiti with a group of uh, medical doctors just to, you know, provide free medical care. And so, uh, you know, lots of people are doing, you know, have have done good things. It it was interesting to, you know, speculate about what I mean. What would Dick have become? What would his life have been? And right. His friends because they would know much better than I would. And well, what, what was it that, about this that was important to you to spend three years reinvestigating everything? I mean, why well, did you feel compelled to do this, write this book? Because I, when I first put something on our class Facebook page, and I heard from, you know, 100 people, who said they'd never forgotten it. And we'd all assumed his father had killed him. And maybe that, I wonder what that was like for his father to live with, you know, all those years. And and uh, the, the next, you know, 40 years of his life. But we all assumed his father had killed him. And, and again, uh, you know, 100 students, classmates contacted me who said, I, I think it's because of the town, you know, because his father wasn't prominent. And so, of course, I was interested in why... You know what happened? Why? Why was he murdered? And uh, but you know, for people to hold on to this for so many years and to uh, continue to believe that it was it fell by the wayside because you know because it wasn't important. And uh, the young woman I'm, I, I told you about who started the school in the Ukraine, et cetera. Um, she she was the yearbook editor when we were seniors, and she was told by the school, you know, don't make a big deal about his, you know, his being, his being, his dying. The year before, a classmate of ours had been killed on a motorcycle. Well, he got to have a full page in the yearbook with his, you know, a big photo and a, and a poem and an acknowledgement of his death. But the school in the town seemed embarrassed 
that Dick had been murdered. You know, that was different than if he'd been killed in an accident. And I, I was very interested in that, and that she was told, you know, don't, don't make a big deal of him in the, in the yearbook. And she found a way to do it anyway. She did it anyway. And, um, you know, he didn't get a page to himself, like the boy did who died on the motorcycle, but he got half of a page to himself. And uh, I, I just thought, gosh, people, you know, why are we still thinking about this? And when it turned out to be that, you know, um, 99% chance his, his father didn't murder him. That was, you know, and we'd all fought that all these years. I didn't know Doug Hamblin existed. I don't, I don't think many of us did because he was, you know, older. Well, and we both know in, in a small town, gossip runs rampant. So, yeah, I can imagine that yeah. I'm sure his father knew people were talking about it and knew that they were kind of pointing the finger at him all these years. And, um, you know, you were you know, able to have. shine the light in a different direction. You know, I did talk to uh, people who, like, remember the cheerleader that, that Dick had been dating. And she, you know, told me that she went into the store, the shoe repair store, not not long after Dick's death because she, you know, the cheerleading team would have their shoes dyed. You know, Columbia Blue is the color, is the name of our school colors, Columbia Blue and White. So she'd have her shoes dyed. And, you know, she would, you know, visit with Dick's father, but they never, ever talked about the case or talked about Dick. And, um, you know, I think we know how difficult it is now to to have those conversations, but even more so then when it was considered, you know, a secret or shameful or, you know, you didn't know what to say. And uh, Dick's father and stepmother, you know, they had a, a social life at the, at the Elks Club and... Um, not the Lions, but one of the other social groups, and they bowled. But mostly, you know, they drank with their friends, and I imagine they there was just not much said about the case. Right. Right. And, you know, the police the police love to drop in at the shoe store, <laughs> and you know, this is all in their extremely detailed notes. Which, you know, thank goodness for detectives, you know, keeping good notes because, you know, verbatim. It's you know the the father's anger and the and the stepmother's anger and and uh, you know in full sentences uh, things that they would say to the detectives and so they love to to drop in on them surprise them but um, it it just I think the town was kind of ashamed of the murder and. Um, you know, and maybe I, you know, somebody suggested recently, and it made me think about it again. Maybe if his father, you know, maybe if his father had been, you know, really important in the town, like, like my classmates say, maybe if he'd gone to the police and said, you know, I want you to do something, maybe they would have taken, you know, a chance on. on a well, that's case. true. That's very true. I think that may have been a hindrance in the sense that he didn't step out and he didn't grease yeah. that squeaky wheel. And so, therefore, no. you know, they they weren't going to go anywhere in in that sense. But Yeah, he did well, not have a parent we... who advocated for him. He did not right. have a parent who fought for him. And and you know, a lot of that has not changed in 50 years. Sadly to say, I mean, we still see it happening that children are out there with with parents who, yeah. you know, look after themselves first, and and the child is right. kind of the afterthought. Yeah. You know, and or one the, of the again one of the the things I thought was so sad is that, you know, Dick's closest friends would hear. No, not so much their parents, but like neighbors say, well, good riddance. You know, he got what he had coming to him. Really, a 17-year-old? He got what he had coming to him, good riddance. And and literally, these you know, these boys would go home and cry. Uh, after hearing that. 
It's amazing how cruel humans can be to other humans. Oh. Cruelty. Yeah. And, and, um, you know, I just thought that was really disgusting. Um, and I, but I think, I think the town, you know, the other, the only other uh, unsolved case was also a, you know, what, what some people would call like a, you know, trailer trash kind of mm. woman who, you know, and I, I think, yeah, oh, I know, I know what I wanted to mention, Delilah. I think what was really interesting is, you know, 1967 and 68, there was no media attention to um, murders or, you know, schools like there is now. If that happened today, and, um, you know, don't you think that probably um, local media and some TV cameras would be at the school trying to talk to his classmates? And uh, one of the things I was shocked about, because I, I found, you know, every bit of coverage that was in our local newspaper, which was only maybe about four or five articles over the, the year. But um, journalism was different then. The reporter who, longtime reporter on the Corvallis paper, who wrote about Dick, um, never once tried to talk to his parents, didn't do any feature stories about who was this young man. You know, like you'd see now. You know, you'd get comments from his friends. You'd talk to his scout leader. You'd talk to the shop teacher at the school. You'd talk to his parents to try to to try to paint a portrait of who was this victim. Well, none of that happened then. And no. I think it was. I, it just didn't. I, I don't think newspapers did that then. A kind of a follow-up. Not like to, not like oh, now. Yeah, not and like and we can quote Bob Dylan, the times they were a change, and, and they definitely were. And Well, yeah. before we run out of time, Rebecca, um, uh-huh. let everyone know where they can get your book, A Murder in My Hometown. A Murder in My Hometown, published by Wild Blue Press. It's on uh, Amazon. It's on Bar- barnesandnoble.com. Uh, it's a uh, paperback, it's an e-book, and soon to be an audio book also. Wonderful. It is, do you do any autograph copies from your website or not doing that? I could. I haven't, I haven't ever done that, but I, I should uh, do that as kind of a, yeah, I'd be happy to do that. Um, I'm speaking in Corvallis. Um, in mid-July, it happens to be, and really, I, I timed this because it's my 50th high school reunion. Uh, Perfect. July. And I, that's why I decided, you know, three years ago, if I'm either going to write this or not. And even a year ago, I was deciding, do I, do I follow through and finish this? And I just decided I, I want, I really wanted to finish it. So I'll be speaking in Corvallis. Um, uh, three times in mid-July, and uh, it's halfway between Portland and Eugene for your listeners who who know Oregon, and uh, I think probably some other places around the Northwest uh, after that. Wonderful. Well, our time is up. Believe it or not, we we blew through this hour very quickly. <laughs> And I just can't tell you how much I enjoyed our conversation and how much I, well, enjoyed, I enjoyed reading the book. You're a great and, host, uh, Delilah, and you you know oh, uh, thank you, have you great questions, and it was it was really fun to talk to you and and I, I well uh, I would love to have you come back and we can talk about some of your other books if you'd like to do that sometime in the future. Oh, I'd love to. Just yes. let me know. Um, okay, you've got my email address. Yes, I do. Yeah, and I, I think, uh, you know, I like to, I think there's something, impo- should be something important in every book, so that the Susan Powell book is, you know, about yes. how Utah states miscommunicated over, you know, might have saved the life of her sons, and the Amish book is about how technology is changing the lives of the Amish. It was completely, her, the murder was planned on a cell phone that an Amish man had, and you know how life is changing for them. So, you know, I'm particularly interested in the the broader world of of these books, and um, I'm just really uh, 
Well, I would be thrilled to have this conversation with you again about another book. So we will stay in touch, and we will do this again. So enjoy your 50-year high school reunion. You know, that (laughs) means I have to think about next year will be mine, and I can't believe I've lived this long. (laughs) Back in 1968, I'm already worrying about what to wear or what am I going to (laughs) buy. Exactly. Exactly. Well, everyone, get out there. Get this book from Wild Blue Press, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. You can also visit the uh, Rebecca's RebeccaMorris.com, her website, and you can see everything else that she's doing. So until next time, come to to Facebook. Find me on Facebook. That'd be yes, or yes, all over social media. Absolutely. So until next time, stay safe out there and please, please be kind to each other. Mm